Hello, my friends. Welcome to the podcast. I am Rick Thomas, and you're listening to Life Over Coffee. I'm so glad that you are here. Today, I'm going to do an interview. I've been talking with Julie Ganshaw for many years now, and we got together a, f- a couple of months, maybe a month or so ago, and talked about doing a podcast, and I wanted to interview her specifically about her new book that she has written. It's called A Biblical Counselor's Approach to Marital Abuse. Uh, this is a cooperative effort between her and one of her counselors on her team, Bill Schlack. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Schlack. Schlacks. It's Schlacks, and it's S-C-H-L-A-C-K-S. And so anyway, uh, the way that we do our podcast is we, we travel to the person's home. And so I am now in Kansas City, Missouri. That's not exactly true, but we're heading out west and to do some speaking in Colorado. And I thought since we're going out there that we might as well go through Kansas City. And so Lucia contacted Julie and said, hey, can we crash at your place for a couple of days? So we're crashing and so we came in last evening, and I said, you ready to do that podcast? And, of course, she's just an eager beaver <laughs> wanting to do it. And so we're in her palatial estate here in Kansas City, sprawled out over her um, kitchen table. Larry's in the background making sure everything is uh, okie-dokie, and we're doing a podcast. All right, so, Julie, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. So you are the lead person. You started Reigning Grace Ministries, a biblical counseling ministry in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, How long ago was that? Uh, Reigning Grace was established in Kansas City in 2009. All right. So you are 12 years old Mm -hmm. doing biblical counseling, and you came from Wisconsin. Yes. And were you doing biblical counseling up there? Yes, uh, I've been doing some form of biblical counseling and discipleship since uh, about 2000, the year 2000. Okay, so you got a co- more than a couple of decades into biblical counseling. Why did you start this counseling ministry? Uh, because I believe that people really need help and hope and healing, and it only comes through the gospel and through the ministry of the word that uh, we use when we are biblically counseling and discipling other people. We didn't find anything like that in the Kansas City area when we arrived here. All right, so do you counsel just locally? Uh, Do you counsel uh, at your offices, uh, or do you do more than that? Well, we are actually a global ministry now, thanks to uh, the Internet and Zoom and um, FaceTime, and I don't know if anyone uses Skype anymore, but that is... uh, um, our reach is now global. So, so, so did you, uh, w- we experienced the, the ironic blessing of COVID, yes. uh, is that the Christian community was thrust into technology more so than they ever had been before. Mm-hmm. I mean, every person under 25 has no issue. I mean, they, they're very comfortable with technology, but mm-hmm. people who are 35 and older, older, maybe 40, 45 and older, aren't as comfortable, but we were left virtually with no, no other option in 2020. And so people were scrambling. Even churches were scrambling. Mm-hmm. I had some church leaders like email me say hey how what about tell, talk, talk to me about this zoom thing mm-hmm. and so the effect i say ironic blessing because there's virtually nothing was a blessing about covid but 
One of the bless the ironic blessings is that people are now more technological savvy out of necessity, mm-hmm. which has caused a bump as far as interacting with Christians uh, in cyberspace, speci- specifically in counseling. Has that been your take? Yes. Um, we had been counseling at our offices here in Kansas City um, up until COVID hit. And we had some dealings with people online through FaceTime and Skype and so on, um, and a little bit with Zoom. But when uh, last March is when things really started affecting us here in Kansas City in a serious way, and everything was shut down and all that. So Zoom really became our best friend um, as far as technology goes, and it has enabled us to reach people all over the world. And yeah. And that's really cool. It's been a real blessing. It really has. I mean, like you said, there's it's an ironic blessing because there's very little about COVID that's been a blessing. Right. And so uh, how many people are on your at the, the Raining Grace office? We have 15 counselors on staff and then several support staff members as well. Okay. That's pretty large. That's a good-sized ministry. You happy yes. with how things are going? I believe so. Uh, the Lord has been really faithful to provide a wide variety of people to serve those that come looking for help. Um, I have young single women. I have older single women, you know, married, remarried. Um, it's It's been a real, and it remains a real blessing. I'll put your website in the show notes, but you, what is it? It's um, rgcconline.org. All one word. Mm-hmm. Rgcconline.org. Yes. And so you can find it, and I'll put it in episode 342 and some other links and some bio stuff about Julie, so you can have that information if you know anyone that's needing counseling, whether it's in the Kansas City area or abroad. Uh, they can contact her and them and, and get set up and, and do some and do some counseling. All right, so what I want to talk about in this podcast is uh, abuse. Mm-hmm. And so you and Bill Schlacks, has, you, you have written a book. Again, the book, and I have a link to Amazon for the book. I assume it's on Amazon, probably under the bestsellers list, but I'll get a link to it, A Biblical Counselor's Approach to Marital Abuse, Roadmap to Reunification. And you can get that book uh, if you wish. All right, so why did you choose to write a book on abuse? Because it's rampant, and unfortunately, abuse is a significant issue within the Christian church. Now, always has been, or here of late, is there a kind of a statistical timeline that shows an increase Well, definitely during COVID, um, a lot of abuse was revealed because people were stuck in the house together for weeks and months on end. And um, so abuse isn't new. It's been around since, you know, Cain killed Abel, right? And um, we have dealt with domestic abuse and domestic oppression throughout our ministry, but we are just noticing more and more women especially are coming for help um and i I think there are some there are some other reasons for that Um, i think in part because uh, some of the biblical counseling organizations have held conferences that are specific to domestic abuse and it just really launched it further up there on the radar and even predating that was the me too movement yeah and the uh 
the church is affected by culture mm-hmm. uh, in in different ways, and so there has been uh, in a situation of this idea of abuse uh, back 2014, 2015, but even before that. Mm-hmm. But it really kind of just hit a uh, th- this skyrocket effect mm-hmm. uh, with the Me Too movement, and so people were coming out more as far as communicating abuse mm-hmm. that has been going on. And so I imagine that's a part of it as well. I would also think that social media uh, would be an aspect. Uh, it used to be that we lived within our sphere, and the sphere was just a local area. Mm-hmm. I mean, to go back a long ways, which would predate all of us, my grandmother was born in a house and got married, and they built a house, my grandfather and grandmother which was 500 yards down the road. And so she lived and died within 500 yards and, of course, went to the little white frame church, mm-hmm. Baptist Church, which was probably three miles down the road. Yeah. And the outside world was, I mean, other, I mean, you, you had the newspaper mm-hmm. and a little bit of television, but it's nothing like what it is today. And so now, in today's culture, everybody has a voice, good or bad, Everybody has a voice, and so you can say anything that you want to say, and so there's more communication than there were, let's say, you know, a hundred years ago when my grandmother was born. And so, mm-hmm. the evolution of communication has to be part of it. Also, I'm not saying I'm not making a commentary on that, saying it's bad necessarily, though, it, it, as we all know that it is. But it it has given voice, and so Me Too has given voice. Social media has given voice. And so now we're hearing about things that we would never hear about mm-hmm. before, or it would just be a passing line in a in a newspaper that we would just go on to the next thing. And so it, it has created a lot of noise, which in some ways is positive because there are people who are being abused that we can hear about it and we can respond to it. Mm-hmm. And some people turn to biblical counseling. Uh, as far as a solution for abuse. And that's where you come in with Reigning Grace Ministries. And so now it's not just men abusing women, right? Correct. Yeah. And so it goes both ways. And so it would be unfair to categorize, one, all men as abusers, or Mm -hmm. men are the only ones that abuse. Because that that would be my experience as well, that that it happens on both sides. That's correct. But predominantly, you would say it's men? Predominantly, it is men abusing women. Um, Statistically, one in four women and one in seven men are abused. And the the abuser is almost always their domestic partner, whether it is a, a spouse or someone they cohabitate with. So we're talking about within a marriage or mm-hmm. and or a, co- a cohabitation uh, yes. relationship. Now, what about church abuse, uh, pastoral leadership to church member? Um, that is uh, culturally referred to as spiritual abuse. Right. And I don't have a statistic on spiritual abuse. Um, many times the, the women who are co- going to their local church for help um, with abuse will uh, not be received well. And, uh, and, and that's not a commentary on all churches by any means. Uh, but there are a, 
a good number of people that we have interacted with whose church leadership has not responded well and the there's almost a secondary form of abuse that takes place when the woman who goes to the church for help finds no help and begins to be as persecuted by the church as she is by her husband. And why would you say, I mean, I'm sure there's multiple reasons as to Mm -hmm. why she doesn't receive help, but what would be one or two of those reasons? I think one of the reasons is that um, I'm not entirely sure that uh, many pastors understand the importance of um, not viewing abuse as a quote-unquote marriage problem. Okay, I, We say that abuse is a problem in a marriage, but it is not a marriage problem. What do you mean by that? Well, you can't or shouldn't really counsel um, concerns of abuse as a marriage problem. Uh, many people want to just... Uh, pigeonhole it as, well, you have a communication problem. So here are some um, helpful things to do to communicate better. Um, You don't want to approach an abuse situation as you would just regular marital discord between two people who overall consider each other as um, equals in the eyes of God. Because abuse is very much geared toward um, domination, power, and control of one party over the other party to keep the, the person who is being dominated or controlled um, under that method of leadership. So you're saying you shouldn't, it's not primarily a marriage problem, it's an issue it's a singular issue, abuse yes. problem. So if a person came in with a pornography problem, you wouldn't start by saying, you know, you have a communication issue. You, right. you would actually deal with the heart, the the mm-hmm. the issue at hand with the individual, the primary individual involved, yes. uh, the pornographer or the abuser, mm-hmm. and then dealing with the heart. Yes. As opposed to saying in either one of those illustrations, abuse illustration or pornography illustration, and say, oh, well, you have a marriage problem. Now, mm-hmm. people... <clears throat> Excuse me. People actually do that. Yes. Say, say, uh, it's a marriage problem. All the time. Yeah. And so uh, within the church, and, wh- and why would they say that? Uh, because I don't believe they really understand the dynamics that are going on within the heart of the person who is doing or committing the abuse against their partner. So it would be a, a basic lack of understanding and application of discipleship mm-hmm. in this case just 101 mm-hmm. if a person comes in with a problem we should be able to diagnose the actual problem going to the heart hope, yes. hope hoping to affect the behavior but if we don't have a change process we don't know how to do that so it, it wouldn't matter if it was abuse or alcoholism or pornography or whatever we just don't know I don't know what to do with you, and so you go, what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, you go with just the standard labels. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, you're a couple. So this is a marriage problem. Right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, it'd be lack of training, lack of understanding with some churches, not all. Yeah, and I think that sometimes pastors really bristle at the idea that, that they need training in this area. Uh, because we know that God's word is sufficient. 
Okay, so I'm not talking about secularized training. I'm talking about the ability to understand all of the dynamics that occur in an abusive or an oppressive relationship through a biblical lens, you know, but being able to um, parse out these different aspects of the heart that are being fed by the person's sinful desires to um, control and dominate their spouse. Yeah, and also, you know, as we're talking, I would not want to uh, put a burden on a pastor. I can hear some pastors saying, uh, oh, wow, I have to be an expert in this area Mm -hmm. because in one sense, it's two different giftings and it's two different vocations to be a pastor as far as what we're generally talking about as a preacher. Mm -hmm. And then also being a biblical counselor, those are two different giftings. Mm -hmm. Most pastors, when they go to seminary, they they take a pastoral track, a preaching track, a homiletic track. All of those things are in that track. And then counseling is kind of a a tack on in a lot of these pastoral degreed programs, which is fair. I'm not saying that as a negative, but if what you're talking about is complex biblical counseling, not just basic discipleship, and therefore there is a need for a a high level of expert skilled care, which means the person who's providing this care is not only well-trained, but they're well-seasoned that they have been doing it for a long time. And so I would not want to, I think it's, I did a podcast one time is, would you expect all do you expect all pastors to be biblical counselors in my view no if if, and i'm talking about this high-end formalized biblical counselor i pastored Mm -hmm. for five years and pastoring in itself is a full-time job that you're running the entire church basically and even with an elder board Mm -hmm. it's a very complex job that keeps you busy and if you've got a couple hundred people and then you're dead and what and and I want you to get into the details of this, but then an abuse case comes in that could lock a pastor down because there's so much involved. It's so complex. Mm -hmm. And so the pastor would not be able really to function as a pastor if he's going to do this job well. So therefore, and this is where I didn't want to put a burden on the pastor per se. However, the pastor or pastors need to have an individual or a counseling ministry within the local church or like your organization, a parachurch organization that can cooperate with the local church where they can receive that expert care. Because mm-hmm. it's almost like you're asking me to be a plumber and an electrician uh, at the same time, and those are two different fields. That makes mm-hmm. sense. It does. and. A ministry like ours, like Reigning Grace, our desire is to work with the local church. Right. Um, I wouldn't say that we consider ourselves experts at this because I think that when you start labeling, when you start using that kind of labeling, I think that it sets up the idea that, um, that we think we have all the answers. And... Honestly, we don't. You know, the only one that has all the answers in any uh, counseling situation is God. And when we are meeting with a couple in which abuse and oppression is present, 
um, you know, our goal, our job is to first to help them both to recognize that what they need first and foremost is Christ. Right. That apart from him and apart from the movement of the Holy Spirit, nothing is going to change. Right. There's no human being that can change an abuser. Right. They, and I, yeah, and that's fair. I, I wouldn't, I was not connoting expert with success or expert with a desired outcome. Mm-hmm. And if somebody did that, that would be unfortunate uh, because on our best days, we are waterers and planters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't bring the increase or the growth. Yes. But that being said, there has to be a high level of skill and seasoning yes. and, and all the other component parts that comes with being, humanly speaking, a good biblical counselor mm-hmm. at this high-end level. And, and that's where I would want to release pastors not to be passive and not to step back from the responsibility of caring, but not necessarily taking on this case because I I, because then you run into a situation to where you're asking the pastor to shepherd the flock and you're asking the pastor to really dial in on this complex and you would say I'm I'm saying you would say but you can tell me if you're going to say this or not (laughs) I'm not gaslighting you here but I'm going to assume you're going to say that each case is unique very Okay, and so you can't cookie-cutter these situations, and so now this pastor, it would be very hard for a pastor to do, but that is not an out for the pastor to not be on point and making sure that this is happening. Correct. And, and, and Grace, Reigning Grace is one of those organizations that can really supplement, complement, you know, a local church, which I think is great that organizations like yours can do that because again speaking from a pastoral chair or wearing a pastoral hat it it can be overwhelming i mean it can just be daunting and when people come to you you want to care for them but it's like oh man Mm -hmm. i mean so you're a doctor and so give me and just to i'll put a point on on this part and we'll move on but to go through the training, what's your training? What what's your, has been your training? And, and, and what I'm getting at is like, would it be fair for someone to go down your training track and then ask them also go down a pastoral training track and, and to take on that, that load? That's an ask mm-hmm. that uh, is unfair, in my view, mm-hmm. for the thousands, multiplied thousands of pastors, like say just in America, but all over the world. So, so what is your credentialing, your training track? What's your? We'll start with it. The last one. What's your doctorate in? Um, I have a PhD in biblical counseling, and uh, my dissertation was on the effects of uh, trauma through sex trafficking um, of with women between uh, a certain age group. Right, and 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 that's what I'm saying is unfair mm-hmm. uh, that. You need that kind of competence, that kind of skill, that kind of training. And, of course, you need two decades. And I'm saying that rule of thumb, two decades right. of counseling practice. I, but, but you need to be – the way we teach it in our school is that you got to get your reps in. Yes. And I tell our students all the time that training is just training. And in, in one sense, it means nothing 
if you're comparing that to a skill level, Mm because there's more involved than just the training. And so there's there's a seasoning involved. There's an academic track that's involved to do this type of counseling. And so we have two two demographics. Every Christian can do the work of discipleship at some level according to their gifting. Absolutely. But now when you're getting into abuse and to drop that on a pastor, that's where I think I, I, I just and I'm I'm belaboring the point probably, but I, I've just heard a lot of unfair criticism toward this blanket almost an absolutism type criticism toward all pastors it's it's like it's not right in my view because we're not understanding the dynamics of like say this abuse mm-hmm. abuse and what what's entailed in it that it, it's a big ask but with that said one final time that pastors can't be passive and they can't kick it in neutral as though they have no responsibility they have to get them to help even though they may not be providing that Uh, I won't say expert, I'll say skilled care, that skilled care to these individuals. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, you say all counseling is, uh, each abuse situation is different. Yes. Uh, So no cookie cutter. No. Um, Our experience has been that while there are some commonalities that take place in every abuse case. Such as? Um. Well, there's always a power and control dynamic. There's always one person that wants to be um, over the, another person. Okay? There, there is one person that wants to dominate another, and they want to subjugate that other person. Now, you know, I can't say if it's intentional or not intentional. Right? We have had some situations where um, a husband had no idea that what he was doing to his wife was crushing her, right? He, he did not understand either it was his home of origin, if he grew up in an extremely legalistic or fundamental um, church situation, and that was how he was raised, um, that's his normal. And then he marries a nice young gal from somewhere, and she they create a family, and suddenly... She is just burdened and crushed under his expectations, and um, neither one of them can figure out what's going on. That's an excellent point. That's that was Lucia. That was our dynamic. Uh, the way that I was reared, uh, it, it was in a chaotic knife throwing. That's literal. <laughs> Not, I have a scar on my back. Uh, drunken, drunken prison, etc. I've shared my story a lot, but. So that was my background. And, of course, Lucia was born in a Christian bubble. As I say, she never sinned. She, she, stole some, she ripped off some lifesavers when she was seven years old. And so she was born in a Christian home, reared in a Christian home, went to Christian school, went to Christian college. And so she lived in this hermetically sealed Christian world. Yes. And then in God's humor, or maybe there's another word you could select, uh, he gave her me. <laughs> and so the way we described it is the Italian uh, married the Amish girl. And when I told her early in our marriage, it's like, I'm just talking. I'm just talking. Mm-hmm. And and what she was hearing was very loud decibel level, but it was a communication style mm-hmm. that 
I, we, I married her when I was 38. So we're talking about four decades of an enculturated, shaping influence of a certain way of doing things. And I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just yes. I'm just affirming your point. And then came together, and she had no context, no experience with that whatsoever. And and so it fits the ignorant label that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's important uh, because you can mislabel someone, and that's just going to send you down the wrong track because you're not understanding truly the dynamic of what is really going on. Exactly. Um, we, we are very careful in our initial sessions with both the, the wife and the husband to um, discern to the best human ability, right? Is this abuse or is the person just kind of in the vernacular a jerk, okay? Because every single one of us, we're all sinners and we're all capable of, of um, responding like a jerk, yeah, but. I would say I was a jerk. <laughs> and I'm not saying a lot has changed since then, but uh, I, I think I've been... I, I tell people, uh, so God gave me to her, and she. what I tell people is she has you know, spent the last 20-plus years domesticating me. <laughs> and uh, it's just been a wonderful means of grace that she's taken some of the edge off. Mm-hmm. And so God, she has been the most significant means of grace in my life to sanctify me because I was pretty rough, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty rough. Uh, and so that's a beautiful story. Uh, it's a hard story to live. Yes. Especially when you're in the middle of it. And in the, I, I would say the first five years of our marriage was pretty tough, tough on both of us, but mostly tough on her. And, and a lot of it has to do with the dynamic that I was explaining earlier. Mm-hmm. Now, if someone if, if we went to counseling and someone said, you know, you're just abusive, what they would be do, doing is um, defining the motive of my heart. And I would say that that was not true at all. That was not my motivation at all. I was dumb. I was ignorant. I was mm-hmm. a jerk. There's other ways of describing, but abu- abusive. Now, people will say, well, the, the, the outcome was abusive. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't use that language. I mean, I was defrauding her. I mean, I was, I was, you know, being angry. I was being rude. There's a lot of biblical labels yes. that can that would more accurately describe what was going on. But when you say, if if every label is, I mean, if every act is abuse, okay. So give me your thoughts about that because that sounds like a whopping problem. If if every if everything is abuse, then. Mm-hmm then nothing is abuse, right? Yeah. If everything's abuse, nothing's abuse. Well, um, we, we use for just ease of communication, we use terms like emotional abuse, verbal abuse. I mean, because they, uh, it's a double-edged sword, right? They both communicate something that is accurate and they communicate something that can be misused. So when we start talking with someone about their ungodly behaviors, we want to um, break it down as you just did regarding your own self, okay? Are we talking about anger? 
are we talking, and what kind of anger are we talking about? Are we talking about cruel anger? Are we talking about explosive anger? Are we talking about being hateful toward a spouse? You know, some of these things we do just because we're sinners, right? But when we start to develop a pattern of this kind of behavior, and when the pattern is pointed out, rather than repentance and change and, and asking forgiveness, uh, you know, confessing sin, uh, we get rationalization, justification, um, trying to manipulate the other party into believing that, hey, I'm the right one, you're the wrong one, right? This is just how I am, and you need to deal with it. And not only do you need to deal with it, but you need to deal with it in a, in a happy, submissive way that does not stop you from giving everything you are to me, no matter how rotten I treat you with intentionality. Right. And so you have to really spend a lot of time on the front end. I mean, you spend time all the way through. but. Yes. Your starting point will, in some way, define your ending point. And so if you don't start well, you can end in a very bad spot. And so you have to spend a good amount of time, discovery, learning this un- individual, trying to understand them the best that you can. Mm-hmm. And Bill really does an excellent job of that when he's meeting with when it's the man that is um, being accused or um, su- suspected of being abusive. Um, he spends quite a bit of time with him hearing his story, right? Because we want to know, um, is this something the guy just grew up with? Is this, is this the patterns that he's always lived with? And does he understand that this really isn't right? You know, is he a, is he a new convert? Does he, as a new convert, understand what God's word says about marriage, about how a husband is to love his wife, and all of those things um, that the Bible is very clear about? Or is he being stiff-necked and rebellious and disinterested in the process of sanctification in this specific area? So uh, Bill takes a long time when he's meeting with a man to learn his story, to learn how uh, he arrived at this place. So I've been spending uh, a good bit of time here recently thinking about how you can't know anybody truly. Mm-hmm. And I'm going through Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers. I won't repeat that here because there's a lot there. But he tells one story about there was a defector from Cuba who came over to the United States and he was debriefing. He's called a walk-in when they just walk into the embassy wherever the country is. And so whenever it's a walk-in of that level, they just let them in and then they start debriefing. And he told the story about how there were a couple of dozen CIA agents working in Cuba. They had penetrated Cuba and they were working down there, but all of them were double agents. They were actually working for Cuba. Hmm. And when this defector came over, he gave names and gave all the data, and it was true. All of these people were double agents, and they were working for Cuba, but they, the CIA thought that they were on the CIA side. Mm -hmm. 
And the vetting process was part of the vetting process is taking polygraph tests and so forth. And so they gathered up all the uh, polygraphers to go back and look through why were these people so convincing? What were the, that there weren't any tells? It's like, how did, how did this happen? These people were on our side, but they really weren't. And uh, anyway, uh, once the defector told who these people are, Fidel created a video and he paraded all the, all their these def- these double agents uh, mm. through Cuba and just made a big just really rubbing it in uh, America's face but the point is in this particular story talking to strangers is that ultimately we don't know and so abusers mm-hmm. um, how do you at some point you have to trust or not trust the story that you're hearing and the the whole idea behind you know theatrics and hypocrisy you know is wearing the mask and we are persuaded you know by good movies they're good actors and mm-hmm. we cry with the story even mm-hmm. even when we know the story is a fictional right. uh, movie uh, where do you go with that? I mean, there's an element of trust on your part, ultimately, that you've done the best that you could possibly do to try to understand. But at the end of the day, we really don't know each other. I mean, you can, we hear pastors, you know, falling into sin, you know, after years of, of whatever. And it's like, how in the world could that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it happens all the time. So what's your thoughts about that in a counseling office when you're trying the best you can, but there's this limitation that you're faced with, a human limitation because you're not omniscient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, our, our process, if I can use that phrase, for helping couples is um, it's recognition, repentance, reconciliation, and reunification. Most of the time, by the time a couple gets to us, either referred by their pastor or because they've heard from someone else and, uh, or they've just reached out for help by looking, up, looking us up on the Internet. Um, many times they're already in a, in a time of separation from each other because uh, she gets scared or fed up or whatever and leaves or he leaves or someone removes him from the home for whatever reason. Um, and so we're involved when things are already pretty far down the road in most cases. And there are uh, years, very often, of behaviors that have worn the recipient of those uh, behaviors and treatment down to the point where oftentimes the women will tell me that they really wonder if they're even sane anymore because things have, he has become so proficient at how he can manipulate her and how he can, um, the, the term is gaslighting, right. um, where you know, they, they convince you to believe things that you said and did that you never said or did, okay, or the opposite direction. And um, we have some, I, I guess I would use diagnostic tools that we use, um, some surveys and kinds of things that are pretty black and white, um, just to get a handle on, you know, is this behavior happening or not happening on both sides of the spectrum? And then, uh, you know, a good healthy dose of discernment is required. 
And then once you get into the actual counseling phase with the couple and, you know, the person who is doing the bulk of the abusive behavior begins to or appears to begin to be changing, the only method of, um, of knowing if you're on the right track or not is time. Because people can fake it. We have seen people fake it for nine months. Right. And as long as they believe that they are fooling you, and as long as they believe they are fooling their spouse, they will keep it up. Because their end goal often is, I just want my wife and kids back. I just want to get back in my house. So I can resume all my previous behaviors because I don't like how things are in my life right now. I'm being held accountable. I don't like that. I'm being corrected. I don't like that. I have to meet with this guy every week. I don't want to do that. Um, everyone is scrutinizing me. And so he will often be able to fake it. But what we know about any person is when there's no genuine change, you can only fake it for so long before the real you starts to leak out. Well, now you're moving outside of the formulaic process of counseling of six and done and 12 oh, and done. Yeah, that went out the window a long time ago. Yeah, um, and it, it, it ties back into why we want to be careful of shouldering or placing it on the shoulders of pastors because if you're going to do it well, time is a huge element of it. And you say a person has been known to fake it for nine months. Um, well, we're talking about a year at least, at least of, of counseling an individual. And so that, that is a, even more than a counselor can do. Yes. Uh, so there's a lot of response, but it's worth it. And, and it, it has to happen. Mm -hmm. It needs to be this way because of what's involved. There's a spouse involved. There's children involved. There's generations involved. So the repercussions are exponential. And so you don't want to cut corners by, doing six and done counseling sessions or throwing it on someone who really hasn't been trained, right. you know, to do, to do this. Yeah. That's why we strongly believe that biblical counseling is discipleship, right? You, you can't disciple somebody in six or eight sessions on this level and consider it done. Yeah. And so going back to what I was talking about earlier, uh, talking to strangers uh, inevitably, uh, most of the time you are talking to strangers. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. There may be a friend or two that you'll meet for counseling, of course, but virtually everybody is a stranger. So you don't know them as mama used to say from Adam's house cat. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to be alone on that because uh, a counseling office in itself is a sterile environment where everybody's on their best behavior. They're putting their best foot forward and it's not the milieu. It's not the life that they live. Mm -hmm. And so discipleship really broadens out what you're doing, the possibilities of what could happen, because now, uh, I, I imagine, I mean, well, let me ask, I, I don't know, but putting people in discipleship context or putting them in the environment of the local church where they can experience the means of grace of the entire church. Mm -hmm. And so they're attending church meetings on Sunday morning, they're part of a small group, they're cooking out with Biff and Mabel on Saturday, and they're, those are my friends. And then they are doing all these other things with the church, plus they're meeting in this in t more intense environment of formalized biblical counseling. Mm -hmm. Now, is that 
what you try to accomplish or, or are you just all alone working with this person? No. Um, our, our desire is to never be um, alone with, in this situation specifically, right? We believe that anytime we're serving someone else's sheep, right? Because we serve far more people from the community than we do from our own local church. You know, um, we believe our ministry is uh, a ministry of the local church. And even though we're a ministry of the local church, our, the bulk of our counselees come from outside and from the walls, within the walls of other people's local churches, their local church, someone, some other pastor. And we want to get not only the pastor involved on a, um, an authority level, right? Because we essentially, if I can use the phrase, we work for him, right? Our, our job is to help his sheep, right? We augment that relationship. And then we want to take someone from within that local church. We want each person to have their, their own individual uh, mentor that comes to their counseling sessions with them that meets with them during the week to go over homework that we've assigned. That that person can um, be the on-call person, right, when situations arrive. And they can oftentimes help with some logistical things. And and when there is a separation in in effect, they can help with things like child care arrangements and figuring out financial things that the couple all has to deal with as a result of you know, the consequences of the separation. So um, we believe in a, in a real uh, full-armed approach. We want the church to be involved. We want there to be a mentoring couple to be involved. And then there is uh, Bill and myself or some of the other staff that we've trained working all together to help this couple to repent and change. So to quote one of your historical uh, heroes, uh, you would say it takes a village. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my hero. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and and it's, it's a body, that's good self, I was going to say that's good self-control on your part. You're doing well right now. Because you no one can see my face. <laughs> get, get it together. So it's, it's, the, it's, a body, it's a body ministry, body-to-body ministry, yes. body of Christ ministering to the body of Christ, or it could be the body of Christ ministering to someone who's not part of the body of Christ, and that would be an essential element, even though that's subjectively discerned on our part. Ultimately, we can't know if someone is regenerated, but there are signs that you can, I mean, humility obviously would be mm-hmm. be one of those signs that you look for. All right, so the first part is that you want to really spend a lot of time doing due diligence and trying to understand not just what's going on in the moment, but what's going on in the most recent moments, but then even farther back, uh, the person's life, that both of their both of their lives, yes. uh, if it's a couple, their shaping influences and so forth, to get a good handle on them, and then they start moving through counseling process. You 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 separate do you counsel them separately? Con- yes. Concurrently. Yes. Uh, where one meets with the wife and one meets with the husband, and then yes. y'all compare notes and discuss and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's a, another 
that would be difficult for a pastor to do as well, mm-hmm. to be able to do dual counseling and even setting up a situation where meeting with a female for a long period of time would not be wise as well. So they go through counseling for a long time, and let's say that is a situation. Now, what about the safety factor? Uh, there's different ways of sinning against someone. Mm-hmm. I don't typically use the word. I, I use the word abuse the way that what you were saying earlier mm-hmm. uh, as as a way of communicating. Mm-hmm. But ultimately what they're doing is they're sinning against the other person. Yes. And you're trying to discern what kind of sin are we talking about. And so, so there's different consequential levels of sin mm-hmm. uh, being you talk about forms of anger, you know, silent treatment, you know, is a form of anger, but consequentially it's nowhere in the realm of, you know, physically, physical anger where mm-hmm. you're harming someone physically. Mm-hmm. And so you, you sep- you may separate them and that's an indefinite, uh, there's no timeline on that Correct. with the individual. I Correct. mean, so what are some of the things that you look for? as far as change and so let's ha- we have a scenario here where a husband has been uh ver- verbally or physically abusive uh, to his spouse they have separated mm-hmm. uh, what are some of the things that you all you and bill and others would look for to see if there is change in this individual well one of the things you said is really critical is that safety is paramount um, we cannot, in good conscience, morally, ethically, legally, um, recommend that a woman who is being physically abused by her husband return to him. Okay, it's just common sense, uh, especially when there are children involved. Although I'm, I'm not diminishing just the the worth of the woman with her husband with no children involved, but when we have kids involved, we can't be returning women to their abusive husbands. Um, What we look for uh, as far as repentance, um, the person who is abusive really needs to begin to see that their primary sin is against God uh, because the person that he is harming is someone who's created in the image and likeness of God and is spiritually equal and it is an equal in every way except for role or function in the church. And uh, his focus has to change from seeing her um, as someone that he is to dominate, right, to someone who is his equal, right, who is his equal in the eyes of God and equal in the eyes of um, every other human being on the planet. And... Um, his goal needs to change from I want to get my wife and kids back to I want to live my life to glorify God. Yeah, it reminds me of the story of Nathan and David in 1 Samuel 12, I think, about the sheep. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Nathan finished the story, the first words out of David's mouth were, I have sinned against God. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. And that's like verse... 14 something like that 
And then in Psalm 51, mm -hmm. uh, he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Yes. Now, in the most technical sense, that's not an accurate statement. I mean, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, whom he had put mm -hmm. to death. He sinned against his wives. He sinned against his children. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He sinned against a lot of people. But but David, and, we go, and of course, we get this... Um, this pretext, God already said he's a man after my own heart. And so his predisposition, even though he was a jerk like the rest of us, his predisposition was he was a man after God's own heart. Now, because of that, when he finally came back around to his senses, you could see that he was a man after God's own heart. Mm -hmm. And in his world, the only thing that mattered at this point I sinned against God. Right. And so when an individual has that mindset that this is God's fame and God's name and God's mm -hmm. glory, and I just don't want to be out of step with my creator, uh, that's, a, that's an attitude you're looking for, right? Yes. Yes. And when that attitude is present, we start to see other kinds of changes. We, you know, we begin to see the fruit of genuine repentance. Not only I'm changing my behavior, I'm, I'm stopping doing the wrong thing and I'm starting doing the right thing. But we see that deep level conviction that uh, how I have been conducting myself is dishonoring to God. And the person is broken about what they have been doing. They're, they are deeply grieved. You know, we often use the illustration of Peter and Judas, right? When Peter denied Christ, uh, the scripture says that he went off and wept bitterly. Okay, he was crushed by what he did. And the evidence of his repentance was when he was restored right, when he met with Jesus on the beach after mm -hmm. the resurrection, what did Peter do? He went out and lived the rest of his life doing the very opposite of what he did that night that Jesus was arrested. That night, he didn't want to know him. And for the rest of his life, until they killed him, he was professing Christ without, without fear of the consequences. Judas, on the other hand, you know, he recognized, just like the Pharaoh did, in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. against God. I have sinned against God. And now I'm going to try and erase my mistake, right? Judas went and threw the money back at the Pharisees and said, here, take it. I don't want it. But there was no demonstration of anything after that. In fact, he took the coward's way out and went and committed suicide, right? Right. So what we're looking for in someone who has been abusive, when we, when we suspect that we're starting to see genuine repentance, it's... They, they become, um, in a sense, self-monitoring, right? Instead of us or instead of Bill at that point, you know, we're, what were you thinking? What were you believing? What were you desiring at the heart level? Okay, the person begins to say, oh, I, I wanted this. That was selfish. I was not thinking about glorifying God in that moment. I was only thinking of myself. So I just said something that was very um, unkind or thoughtless or cruel. And then they begin to put the pieces in place themselves without all the constant prompting and reminding and rebuking. And, and, and you can just start to see that the person that they're becoming is extremely different from the one that they once were. And that is very hopeful for us. Right. 
it's a, a philosophical discussion on the word liberty or freedom. Some people teach that freedom or liberty means I can do anything that I want to do, and that's really not an accurate description of freedom or liberty. A drug addict says I'm free mm -hmm. to do you know, drugs, mm -hmm. but ultimately he's not free. He's incarcerated. He's addicted to his drugs, so he's not free at all. And right. so if you have the philosophy that freedom means I can do anything that I want to do, that's really an inaccurate understanding of what freedom is. To, to be free, freedom is the ability to walk away from things. It's the ability to say mm -hmm. no, and the person who says no ultimately is the most free person in the world. Yes. And so the husband or, or the drug addict, the mm -hmm. drug addict who says, I'm not going to do that drug anymore, will experience incredible freedom yes. because he has the freedom or the power to say no. And so if God is empowering an individual, now we're talking about regeneration. Like yes. You have to be born again because this is otherworldly power to say no to selfish, uh, to sin, selfish ambition, and so forth and so on. And so if this person is walking in that kind of freedom where I, I don't want to do anything that I want to do, I, I want to say no to sin, yes. then they will experience a, a, an entirely different kind of life. All right. So then the other side of the spectrum is, uh, to quote one of my historical heroes, which is different from yours, obviously, uh, t Tammy, uh, the sarcasm there, uh, Tammy Wynette, uh, <laughs> who was married to George Jones. Um, she's, she had a song called D-I-V-O-R-C-E, mm -hmm. which, you know, the younger audience or those who aren't cool, who don't listen to country <laughs> music. Uh, so the cool crowd who's old, which would be you and me, uh, you know, Tammy Wynette, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so she had a famous song in 19, like 67, 68, uh, called D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Love that song. Now. Just as a footnote here, I have no idea what those lyrics are to this. <laughs> All the songs I listened to, you know, 50 years ago, I, sometimes I listen to them today, and it's like, oh, is that what that song was saying? <laughs> and so if any of you go and listen to D-I-V-O-R-C-E, uh, there's my apology uh, and my footnote. But anyway, the other side of it is that a person doesn't change. Uh, they do not want to surrender to God's authority, they're going to continue to be the authority of their lives, and they're going to do whatever it is they want to do. Where you stand uh, on divorce, is there, here's a straightforward question that's going to put you on the spot, and uh, let's, let's do it. Let's do it as we wrap up this podcast. Um, where's your stand on D-I-V-O-R-C-E, biblically? Well, what I will tell you is the Bible does give us a couple of specific incidences in which divorce is allowed. Sexual immorality and abandonment are the, the two areas that most Christians agree on. Matthew now, 19, 1 Corinthians 7. Yes. And I know that some of my permanence friends don't even recognize those as um, as a acceptable reasons for permanence friends means uh, people that believe that there is no reason for divorce uh, no exception for divorce uh, marriage is a, a permanent union of one man and one woman from the time the covenant is created until one of them dies uh, as a ministry 
we specifically relating to domestic abuse our uh and i'm going to use the word policy here is we don't ever tell people to get a divorce uh, we strongly believe that anyone who is regenerate can repent and change so our goal always is reconciliation and reunification of the family we also recognize we don't control that we we cannot force a person to repent we cannot manipulate them cajole them scream at them holler at them threaten them into repentance and change and sadly um there are more cases than not where the abuser does not repent and change and this is one of the reasons that working with the local church is so critical. You know, so many churches have so many different views on, well, what do we do if he doesn't repent? Well, my personal ideal is, okay, then we go through the Matthew 18 process, right? You know, we have been, we have been in that process throughout the, the biblical counseling and discipleship, um, you know, process. And when there is no response, when there is no repentance, it is the obligation, in my opinion, of the local church to then discipline that individual and to apply the pressure that comes from Matthew 18 to hopefully put that person in a position where they are going to see the consequences of remaining unrepentant. And if not, then the person is put out of the church, and in the eyes of the church, they're considered to be an unbeliever. And uh, we recommend that our uh, spouses, the wife most of the time, um, you know, she follow the counsel of her local church in that regard. And if the local church is unwilling to enact the Matthew 18 process, well, it's a part of Scripture, and I don't know how you can get around it, it's time to maybe consider finding a different church, one that will take all of what God's Word says seriously. So two reasons for divorce in your view, Matthew 19, adultery, porneia, and then in 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment. You can, um, you could consider a, a refusal to repent and change to restore the marriage abandonment. Yeah, and so there's two angles there. Mm -hmm. If someone came and asked you, do you believe that you can get a divorce for abuse? Mm -hmm. And you would say? I would say that you need to be in very close contact with the elders of your church and follow what they are telling you unless it is unbiblical yeah i would say i don't even know what you're talking about because abuse has been so elasticized mm -hmm. that i don't know what you're talking about and so uh, i would say that you're asking the wrong question let's get into what are we talking about well uh, i was talking specifically in a situation that we were already involved in yeah okay if if a if a woman would just come up to me or call me or email me and say my husband is abusive can can you help me get a divorce my immediate answer would be well no not right now okay we need to we need to dive into this and we need to see exactly what's going on 
because unfortunately there are circumstances in which women make false claims. And I know that some of you are screaming out there and I know I've just gotten a whole bunch of hate mail, but send it to Rick, not to me. And, uh, I I just, I, I know too many women that are sinful, me among them. Right. Right. We're, we're all sinners and sometimes we just want what we want and we're willing to say and do whatever it takes to get what we want. I mean, that's, that's the same dynamic that's present in the abuser, right? right? I want what I want, so I'm willing to say and do whatever it takes to get what I want, no matter what cost it is to you. Yeah, I wanted to tease that out because abuse is such a, it has become such a globalized word, global mm-hmm. in the sense that mm-hmm. it encompasses Mm-hmm. All kinds of, uh, uh, all kinds of uh, discomforts or preferences, and sometimes what we what we used to understand as legitimate abuse, it just gets lost in it. And now we can just use the term abuse. It's, mm-hmm. it's why I use the term for communication, as I said earlier, for communication mm-hmm. reasons. But that's not the term that we should be using because you, you're not teasing out anything because mm-hmm. it means everything. And so what ultimately happened, what you want to ask is what kind of sin are you talking about? Yes. Now, if a person is in an unsafe environment and they separated and then you go through Matthew 18 process well, and they're disciplined out of the church, they're treated as an unbeliever. And, and they are making volitional decisions that I am not going to change, well, then that is an abandonment yes, right, of, of the marriage. They have abandoned. They're, they're saying, I am not going to fulfill my responsibilities as a biblical spouse, whether it's a man or a woman. Yes. I'm not going to fulfill my biblical responsibilities as a spouse. Well, that's a way of saying that I am abandoning my uh, biblical responsibilities as a spouse, mm-hmm. and they've gone through a process of Matthew 18, uh, even though you or I would not recommend, because we're not part of a church as far as the poly, or as far as the leadership, elder board, whatever. And so we would not say that, but mm-hmm. that would be a position that the church could take, mm-hmm. you would say, reasonably. There's biblical... I think so. Um, yeah. But I would be... The other side of that is you, you, you couldn't tell them to get back together if there's physical. No. I mean, if, if there's a danger uh, happening. And so if they can't get back together, and of course there's legal issues as well when it comes to physical abuse. And yes. so you can't, even, you can't be responsible for that. And so that is an abandonment of, of the marriage. And I think um, one of the things that we've learned in dealing with people from all over the country and even all over the world is for the person who is doing this aspect of ministry, um, it's really important that someone in that location check out what are the laws in that state. Right. Um, Bill and I were speaking at a conference earlier this year, and I went and looked at the domestic abuse laws in their state versus my state here. And the laws are different, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. what my state doesn't consider abuse, in right. quotes, that state does. Right. And some of the the state laws are so broad that you can include almost anything. I mean, mm-hmm. there's even one state that I know of in the union for certain that considers verbal abuse to be a crime. I mean, where where do you go with that? Right. Right. Um, so it's really important 
that uh, you do a lot of research or someone in that state's specific location does a lot of research. Yeah, and we're in an ever-changing political climate that seems to have just accelerated over the past decade to where laws have changed so Mm -hmm. much Mm -hmm. uh, as moving away from you know, a biblical common sense mm-hmm. or even common sense period, mm-hmm. you know, a man can be a woman and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so abuse can also. It's elastic. Yeah, it's elastic. I'm talking with uh, Julie Ganshaw, uh, her and Bill Schlacks. Uh, they have written a book called A Biblical Counselor's Approach to Marital Abuse. I'll put this in the show notes. A Roadmap to Reunification. Uh, it's completely revised and updated. So what does that mean? You, I mean, it means it's revised and updated. Yeah. So don't answer the question. With, okay. <laughs> with, no, don't answer the question by saying what I just said. What does that mean? Uh, it means that uh, from the first edition to the second edition. Um, it's been revised it's and updated. It's been revised and updated. <laughs> no, we've, we have um, really refined a lot of the language in the book. Our first edition... Um, even for Bill's and my comfort, it, it just did not really get at the heart of what we wanted to say. And um, the second edition of the book, I believe it has a much more biblical thrust. Um, I, I think that it's a lot, I, it's just a better book. Um, we both really even regret the first edition. Oh, I get it. Yeah. An artist is never happy with yeah. their artwork. A preacher is never satisfied with his sermon. Mm-hmm. An author is never completely. I mean, those are strong, absolute statements. I don't mean it that way, but you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. I go back and read stuff that I wrote, you know, 15 years ago, and it's like, really? Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, praise God for editing. Uh, but that also is the same for everyone uh, who names the name of Christ. If you've been saved for half a minute and uh, you go back to what you believed, the day God saved you or six months thereafter, and then you move, you know, five and 10 years down the road. Yeah. I mean, let's put it this way. If we aren't changing, there's something wrong with us. Definitely. And so, and that's why we want to hold our views loosely. Mm-hmm. Even, even this book, you want to hold these views loosely uh, because again, we're not omniscient. God's still working in us. Mm-hmm. But again, that, that should not deter us from faithfully communicating the way that we understand scripture today, we need to do that boldly, courageously, compassionately, knowing that uh, there's going to be ongoing reforming mm-hmm. as we move on down the road. And so revised and updated is fine. Uh, it's actually, I kind of like that. Or, or you could have, you know, this is the way we've always done it and we're never going to change. Uh, that in itself could be problematic as well. All right, uh, that wasn't painful, was it? No. Thank you so much. This is Julie Ganchow. I'll have the links and so forth in uh, the show notes. This is episode 342, and you can listen to the podcast. You can check out the links. You can get her book. You can check out her website at Raining Grace here in Kansas City. Uh, if you need counseling, uh, Zoom-wise, that works perfectly. You can contact her, and they can get that set up. And uh, if there's any other way that we can serve you, please jump on our free community forums. You're welcome to do that. We'll be be glad to talk about 
this subject of abuse. If you have something else on your mind, we can discuss that as well. For those of you who support our ministry, thank you very much. We have a private forum for you, and you can jump on there. And anything pertaining to life and godliness. Julie, thank you so much. This has been a a little bit over an hour, I think. And so this is a good, long podcast. And it's, it's not enough not on this subject, right? Right, right. There's so much more to be said. Yeah, so much more. And uh, she's ready to answer all those questions. And so send her an email. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. All right. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.